my followers. I agree with Drew. You got an ancient joke about the guy. It's not the computer. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. It's five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Welcome to In Syndication. I'm Biggs. I'm Brandon. I'm Dennis. So we are doing episode one on Star Trek. And I'm sure everybody out there is familiar with Star Trek, but we're going to break it down for you anyway. We just decided to pick one of the biggest shows ever for the first show. (laughs) So no pressure. But I thought this would be a a good one to start with because I know everybody in this room is familiar with it. And I'm guessing that everybody listening, if even if you haven't watched it, you're familiar with Star Trek somehow. It's impossible to escape there's movies, there's who knows how many spinoffs, six, but (laughs) I'm wearing my nerd pants today. Just weasel that right in there. But if you want to know how this show works, just check out episode zero. We'll give you the the quick breakdown, but we're just going to launch into it. So first off, we're going to talk about how this show broke ground. It was the first popular science fiction show to have recurring cast that wasn't set in a stationary location. We've had a lot of science fiction shows before that, but mostly there's stuck on a ship they're stuck under the sea there's not a lot of changes of locales Mm. this one they're actually building things every episode like back in the 60s they were averaging 166,000 an episode which was like monumentally huge in the 60s the thing i think people more know star trek from is the multi-ethnic cast though so at a time when you have mostly white cast and if you have another ethnicity you're having people who are white portray it you know like you have people where they do the makeup to make them look Asian. You have people in blackface still in the 60s. That's still a thing that's happening. Maybe not as common as it was. But this is a show that had Leonard Nimoy and Walter Canning. Their parents were Russian Jewish immigrants. Uh, you had Nichelle Nichols, who is a first black woman in a starring role on a TV show, who is like a recurring character that had never happened before. You have George Takei, who is Japanese American, which keep in mind, you know, your people in your 40s had fought in World War II, so there's still a very strong anti-Japanese prejudice. And he was uh, he was in an internment camp. His parents were immigrants, but he was a citizen. I mean, it's really horrible what happened um, in, in that, that time. And he, when yeah. he was six or seven years old, all of a sudden be stuck behind barbed wire. And then, of course, we have James Dewan, Scotty, who's <laughs> playing Scottish, but he's actually, his parents were Irish who immigrated to Canada. But you're not just sticking white Americans on the screen. You actually not only have a lot of ethnicities represented in in the show, but you have different ethnicities playing those characters. So that alone is a major, major breakthrough for a primetime show in the 60s. Like, that's huge. Nothing else. The biggest legacy that Star Trek has is just that they had this vision of the future, and that vision wasn't 
whitewashed. The whole world is involved in that, right? Yes. Uh, yeah. Another breakthrough that they had behind the cameras, DC Fontana was one of the first female writers to work on television. She worked on Star Trek. She handed in, I think, like five or six scripts, and she was a script supervisor. So very often, when you're talking about any given episode of Star Trek, DC Fontana wrote something on it. In fact, in one of the episodes we're about to cover, she actually handled final rewrite of it, which we'll get into when we get there. To add there. Well, the very first interracial kiss. We'll come on back to television, that. On put, American television. Yes, put a pin in that because <laughs> we'll come back to that. Oh, okay. Because there is there is legend and there's history and they're different things. <laughs> we'll come back to that. Cultural significance. I think the biggest one is that Nichelle Nichols was thinking of leaving the show. The legend is that she wanted to leave the show because she didn't like her lines. Another legend that she left the show is because she was tired of dealing with harassment from Paramount Pictures around the lot. People on the show were good to her, but the people outside of the show were not good to her. There might be truth in both of those things, but recently Nichelle Nichols has been saying she was getting a lot of offers. She just didn't think Uhura was a big enough part to where she could turn down some of these other offers. And then she met Martin Luther King at a party and he told her, you have to stay on the show. Like it's important that people see a strong black woman on television and you're in charge of a lot of these white people on the show. And they're seeing that somebody who's black can actually be in a position of authority. It's really important that you stay on the show. So that's huge, right? Like today, that's probably even bigger than it was in the day. Just because we talk about Martin Luther King, he's got his own holiday for God's sakes, you know. And and also, William Shatner does not have a reputation for being easy to work with, and she really did not like working with him, and that was a big part of the problem. Yeah, and that's another thing that, as she's gotten older, she's definitely uh, sweetened on that and said that he's a sweetheart and she got along with everybody. But I've heard stories from. Everybody but Leonard Nimoy. Leonard Nimoy and him were very tight, but everybody else oh, in the cast had they problems. Had, oh, with but them. they had their separations too, though. They, yeah, they fought yeah. a lot and didn't speak to each other for years. And yeah. but Shatner did say that Leonard Nimoy was his first true friend. They're clearly like friends to the end. I mean, they did an episode of Futurama, and they brought in the entire cast except for James Doohan didn't want to do it, so they didn't. Was he still alive when they? did Yes, that? he was still alive. He didn't want to. Do because this was in the original run of Futurama. William Shatner was the linchpin to the show and he didn't want to do it and Leonard Nimoy kept telling him, no, you'll really like it because he had been on a couple episodes of The Simpsons as a guest voice and he had done the pilot episode of Futurama as a talking head in a jar. And so he convinced William Shatner to do it, but then he kind of felt like, well, I don't know when it started to get closer. And so he said, I'll do it if Leonard can be in the room recording with me. And they never allowed people to record in the room together, but they were like, for William Shatner, sure. They let him and Leonard Nimoy record together. So that's how tight that friendship was, especially towards the end. So a lot of things have changed, but William Shatner was kind of one of my heroes when I was growing up because you know he was this action figure, you know, that was principled and honorable and brave and all those kind of things. And, and then when you get older, you get a little bit more realistic about that. <laughs> and you're like, he sweats a lot when he has to make a big decision. <laughs> like buckets. <laughs> like Ripley and Alien buckets. <laughs> Yikes. So going a little bit more into the cultural significance, uh, Mai Jameson, who was the first black woman in space, said Star Trek was a huge influence on her going into the aeronautics program. And then also Whoopi Goldberg, who would wind up on The Next Generation and, I mean, just famous in her old 
own right before that even. She was saying that she saw Yahura on television when she was a child and she like excitedly ran in the other room and talked to her mom and she was like, look, there's a black woman on TV and she's not a maid. That was a really big deal for her. And so and she was an officer, yeah. not just on the yeah. crew. She was an officer. Yeah, she's a lieutenant commander on yeah. that show. That also kind of leads me to something else I was going to get into, which is the original pilot for Star Trek with a mostly different crew. The only holdover is Leonard Nimoy's playing Spock, but he's just a science officer. He's not the first officer. And I think Major Barrett, she's playing the first officer. She's second in command in the ship. And that was one thing that the studio definitely objected to and would not bend on. They would not have a woman first officer. So Gene Roddenberry instead put a Jewish person as the first officer, which they weren't thrilled about, but because he was an alien, they kind of let it go. Uhura is basically, what, probably fourth in command? I think Scotty's third. Because when they go to blow up the ship, it's always... No, Sulu was... Well, see, Sulu, I think, is... Sulu third. gets promoted to captain later in the movies. Well, but I, if it's based on seniority, it'd be it'd be either Bones or Scotty, but I don't think Bones has been in... Bones is a medical officer. Well, yeah, though. But, but I mean, but it'd have to be Scotty because he's he's definitely the oldest officer there. Something else they did in this show, they had a Russian character brought in in the second season during the height of the Cold War. You're talking a few years after the Bay of Pigs and the Cuban Missile Crisis. You're right in Vietnam. And then you have a Russian character who's working alongside everybody else and not a villain. They definitely have their fun with him for sure. He's a real blowhard and everything that's Russian is great, <laughs> right? But still, you have that character working with everybody. So, I mean, it's a mixed bag, but... Well, they're all mixed bags. I mean, you know, even even Mr. Spock keeps getting insulted. You're almost human or you're acting human. Yeah, but he definitely gives as good as he gets on that show, too. So I figured we'd talk about point of careers here. Just about everybody's height that worked on the show, I think, was Star Trek. We could kind of debate that if you guys want. But looking at Gene Roddenberry, I think all of his successes in his career really revolve around Star Trek. You have the original series, which puts his name out there. And then when it gets in syndication, I think is really when he becomes big because he's going around the college circuits and he's giving speeches about Star Trek. And the show is more popular than it's ever been. By like the motion picture, he kind of loses power with Star Trek. And then he comes back to Next Generation. It's like at the end of his life. And I don't think the Next Generation quite had the reach that the original series did, especially not in those first couple of seasons. It's it's amazing, the concept that he had of it you know and how what what if some of his original ideas were like the, the working title of this of star trek was wagon train to the stars because he wanted to make a western that was in space and so he thought that because of gun smoke and all the westerns that were on bonanza. bonanza and so he was trying to to appeal to that audience also but kind of take him in a different direction he was also and trying to sell the show to the network exactly <laughs> yeah and then they changed it afterwards. But, you know, it's like the, the disc on the Enterprise was a big globe in the first working drawing of it. And that would have been ugly. Well, and when they came up with the modern design, they flipped it upside down and were originally going to show it upside down, which... I was like, that's weird. And then I saw the picture with it upside down. I'm like, that kind of makes sense. Like when you look at it, I could totally tell how that would be a design for a spaceship. You know, if you, if you just take your image of how the Enterprise should be and you look at it, it's like, yeah, that makes sense. But I'm glad they flipped it back around. They said it would be disorienting for the audience. <laughs> I don't know what that means. But. <laughs> 
on the most of us watching it on a TV screen this big yeah, from across the room. Three ratios <laughs> where it's just like blurry as hell. Yeah. Half yeah. of them are in black and white. Yeah, I was so impressed when we were watching this one because it was a it was a high def broadcast. I did. Did we all watch this on Netflix? I did. I, I did. Yeah, because I, I don't want to watch it on my fantastic. Oh, they look great, and you could see how crappy the scenery was, and that <laughs> and the sets, and they fixed some stuff. They kind of went digitally altered a few things but just a few things but the transfers are really beautiful but yeah it's one of those shows that because it's still so loved even though it's been around for so long they preserved all the film and they transferred them to hd and they did it with a lot of love because there was a lot of money to be made in doing that yeah because everybody loves money right yeah i mean from that time i feel i feel like batman is the only other one that they really preserve like that. Like everything else doesn't look this good in the transfers. Yeah. And most things were done on film, not videotape Mm -hmm. in in those days. And so that's what I've been discovering more and more with Blu-rays is like when you watch a film, doesn't matter how old it is. Like if they go and digitally remaster it and it's done on film, man, they can make it look so beautiful. I've watched a few of the criterion collection where the Smithsonian actually paid the studios to, digitally remaster a bunch of the movies and they look amazing incredible the stuff you saw all of a sudden i mean i'd seen that thing 30 40 times i don't know and there were things i did not notice you know that's one thing that's really interesting about digitally remastering a a film is because the film does capture everything more so than a videotape because when you record to a videotape it actually processes the images to a certain pixelation rate whereas the film it's all in there but when they show it you can only see so much of it and i don't know i don't know how they do it but right (laughs) computers i guess some fm fucking magic (laughs) (laughs) it's a tribute to gene roddenberry that this show is so loved that they're just spending all this time to restore it for generations to still watch so without a doubt this is the height of of his career um looking at like gene coon who did a lot of rewrites on the show wrote a lot of the most beloved episodes of star trek Pretty much all the funny ones as well. He did some episodes of Dragnet, Maverick, Bonanza. He came up with the idea for the Munsters and pitched it. And even <laughs> even with the Munsters, which like takes off, and that's probably might be where he made the most money. He he made some all timers, so it's like that's clearly the high water mark for him. I mean, George Takei is probably more popular now that he's ever been, but still, he he's not on a weekly show. Clearly, Star Trek is his. Yeah, he's doing the social media thing, and that's probably his claim to fame now but i mean still they know him from star trek so moving on i want to talk about how star trek influenced other shows and stuff down the line one thing i saw when i was watching one of the episodes we were going to talk about later in review was the design of the horda i believe influenced an episode of aqua teen hunger force with Travis of the Cosmos is this little like a uh, shag carpet looking monster like spews acid everywhere. The basis of that like I mean they're only like 15 minute episodes so or 11 I think. So Roddenberry obviously didn't uh, copyright the Horda. I think it's all fair use anyway if it, if it's for comedy which is why we constantly tell jokes on this podcast so we can just grab sound bites. It's all legal guys. <laughs> We're talking about stuff that you learn from so it's all legal. Uh, South Park of course had a joke 
joke where they argued about how many episodes of Star Trek there were and just countless things. They had a, a Halloween episode where everybody who comes from the evil alternate dimension has a goatee, <laughs> which is right out of Star Trek. There's just all kinds of shows that crib off of Star Trek. But not only that, production designs, all kinds of things, especially science fiction. They really, really took the torch from Star Trek. Without Star Trek, you don't have Babylon 5. You don't have Battlestar Galactica. Even though it was trying to crib off of Star Wars, they definitely cribbed off of Star Trek a lot, too, when you talk about that 70s show. I, I did want to say, what, and, and I, you know, maybe that's a an, an influence that's maybe not influencing shows per se, but it influenced TV in general, was they were really the first show that I was aware of where you had a not only a multiracial cast, but all the extras, you know, all the guys in the red shirts that were going to die, um, you know, and all. <laughs> but you saw a, a variety of races in the extras, which you never saw. That's in true. The other shows. You That's know? true. Yeah. And it's not. And it's in, not like we have a black guy, so we're going to kill him. And it's like kind of. If you got a red shirt on, you're fair game. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah unless, unless you're Scotty, they go down a planet. If you have people that aren't in a bunch of makeup or whatever, you see all races around, and they don't make a big deal out of it. Yeah. And just, that's that's kind of the key is they don't make a big deal out of yeah, it. Yeah. They like never really else. like we're talking about. Oh, we're doing this because of this person's black or this person's this culture, and they never dwell on it or even really discuss it. It just is. Yeah. A lot of the shows I grew up with, the Lone Ranger or something like that, where Tano wasn't even a Native American person. It was a it was a Johnny Depp. Well, <laughs> no, I mean joke. TV show. <laughs> I know. Uh, anyway, but same deal. But but yeah, but the they would just dude. put they would put body makeup on you. Know, they didn't even use real Native Americans. And my wife and I were watching uh, the Devil in the um, the, the Devil and, in the Dark, Devil in the Dark together, and because we're both big Star Trek fans, hadn't watched that episode in a long time, and we noticed that you look in the background, and, and there were not only the normal white guys, but there was a, an American guy, and then there was a guy we couldn't tell if he was like the subcontinent of India or if he was Arabic or whatever. But I mean, clearly he wasn't just a white guy with dark brown makeup on, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, which you used to see a lot. He was very groundbreaking with that too, and you definitely see it a lot more in other shows to where that's not a big deal when you see extras running around who are different races but i mean star trek was really the first that i'm aware of to do that now we're going to talk about the context of the times so what events unfolded in the country that were relevant to the show well the two episodes we did were vietnam and as we stated this was during the cold war and there's definitely statements on vietnam in both of these episodes which we'll get into but i think vietnam really affected star trek a lot i mean i was looking it up and there's at least 10 episodes that are commonly referenced that are clearly allegories for Vietnam. One but they're them, all saying different things about Vietnam. Yeah, one of them was a, a really blatant uh, Yankee communist uh, one where the Yangs and the Coms, and I forget the name of that episode. Off the top of my Is that head. the one where the Klingons are trying to train the people? Yeah. Yeah. Kirk sees the American flag and is like, oh my God, I've been supporting the wrong people. <laughs> The other thing that was going on that I think we're really losing sight of right now is the environmental movement was was becoming huge. And the Horda was definitely influenced by that. It might be the last of its kind. We need to preserve this thing. It's definitely yeah. a I mean, centerpiece for that episode. Yeah. And also talked about you know scarcity of natural resources. You know That was prior to the oil embargo, which happened about seven years later. Nikola Tesla warned people about the use of fossil fuels back in the teens and 20s. The 
the people that were really paying attention to what was going on, which were, there weren't very many because everybody was making so much money, they didn't, just didn't really care what was going to happen 50 years or 100 years from now. But there was plenty of warning out there. And it, it really kind of came to a head in the 60s when Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, came out. I think it was 61. The environmental the movement is a huge thing that's almost like people don't even really talk about it anymore. It's just, it's an accepted thing and, and they don't get outraged. Like we used to be outraged about stuff that in the environment. Now it's like, oh, okay. Lead in the water in Flint, Michigan. Huh? So what? The government will take care of it. Well, in the 60s, the government didn't do anything about it. You know, Lake Erie caught on fire. Yeah. I yeah. mean, it, it, there was, I mean, I, I can't tell you how different the sides of the highways are today compared to what they were when I was a kid. You yeah. would not believe the amount of garbage, even in Montana, even though there was a, a $75 fine if you got caught throwing garbage out the window. But In the 60s, people just didn't even see it. They were just so used to it. They'd go to a park and just leave all their trash there and, and just like nobody thought about it. One of the things I've heard is that commercial where the, the Native American is walking Ironized down the Cody. street. Yeah. yeah. He sees the, the piece of garbage being thrown out the window in the tear. But it actually got people thinking about it. They, they drive yeah. by and they throw a bag of garbage out and it hits his feet. He paddles his canoe down the river and all this garbage is floating by. And yeah. Yeah, it's a very, it was a very powerful moving commercial. Let's move on to the plot synopsis. So first we're going to do the city on the edge of forever. The Enterprise is hit by shockwaves, injuring Sulu. McCoy administers a couple drops of space acid to him, saving his life. <laughs> Another shockwave hits and he accidentally doses himself. He raves about assassins, knocks out a member of security, surprisingly not killing the red shirt, and beams to the surface of the planet. Kirk, Spock, Uhura, Scotty, and some red shirts follow McCoy to the planet. There they encounter a giant Eye of Sauron named the Guardian of Forever. The Eye displays cheap stock footage of film strips within it, offering to transport them to any time they wish. McCoy shoves the red shirt, somehow not murdering them, and leaps into the Eye. Uhura states they've lost contact with the ship. The Guardian informs them all that you know is gone. Seeing no other course of action, Kirk and Spock leap into the eye, intending to arrive moments before McCoy appears in the past. Kirk and Spock arrive on Earth during the Great Depression. They steal clothes to blend in. A police officer attempts to arrest them, but Spock stuns him with a Vulcan neck pinch. He comes to and chases them. They escape and meet Edith Keeler. She runs a soup kitchen, preaches pacifism, a better future, and spaceships. She then offers them a place to sleep and work for five cents an hour. Spock builds a computer out of stone knives and bear skins. He sees an obituary for Edith, then an article that says she met with Roosevelt dated after that day. Spock realizes that Edith Keeler will convince the president to delay entering World War II, allowing the Nazis to develop the A-bomb, winning the war, and making their future disappear. Kirk confides in Spock that he's fallen in love with Edith. Spock tells his captain that she has the right idea at the wrong time, and that Jim... Edith Keeler must die. McCoy appears and passes out in the street. A homeless man finds his phaser and disintegrates himself, a surprising action for a man without a red shirt. This is... <laughs> This is never alluded to again since homeless people apparently suck and have no bearing on the future. McCoy is found by Edith and nursed back to health. Later, Edith asks Kirk if he wants to go to a Clark Gable movie. He says he doesn't know who Clark Gable is. She mentioned that another man she knows, Dr. McCoy, also didn't know who Clark Gable was. Spock, Kirk, and Edith go to see McCoy, putting her in the path of a truck. McCoy jumps to save her, but Kirk sadly restrains him, resetting the timeline. The three return to the Guardian. Kirk foregoes a laughing freeze frame by telling his crew let's get the hell out of here so what were you guys' thoughts on this episode you know 
know what really stuck out was the main plot line with Edith Keeler being a, she was a pacifist and convinces the government not to interfere with in World War II and thus the Nazis take over, which is what changes the timeline, which I thought was really interesting thinking back on Montana history because we had the one congressperson. Was it Jeanette Gen- Rankin? Jeanette Rankin, who voted against entry into World War II after and World, World War One And too. World War One. Yeah, yeah, both of them. She got voted out of office both times. So, I mean, it's something that I'm very aware of thinking about Montana's past. When I was watching that episode, seeing some of the re- repercussions that stopped and made you think a little bit, you know, just because thinking about what happens when people go to war. So I thought it was really interesting thinking about that. They end up having to kill her so that the United States can go to war. They didn't kill her. They didn't prevent her from dying. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there's a difference. There's yeah. a difference. They weren't actively killing her. Yes. That prevented McCoy from saving her. Right. I really, really struggled with that because I thought the rest of the show I thought was really well done. Here's my struggle. This story is super tight and it gives you something to think about, which I think is when Star Trek is really good when you're really thinking about it because a lot of the really good episodes, it's not clear cut if it's the correct answer. Answer, it just makes you think about things a different way. Sometimes it is very ham-fisted and they're they're telling you this is the right thing to do, right? This is not one of those episodes. It's like gut-wrenching the decision that Kirk has to make, which I think is why it stands up. So I really applaud it for that. What I don't like is that the conclusion is that it's pacifism at the wrong time, which is a message about Vietnam. It's exactly what Spock says. Yeah. She was just too early with her message. And I, I really yeah. don't like that and, and uh, I think it's Justman who is the the producer. He said years later, like, of course it was about Vietnam. <coughs> like he was making the point that they were talking about the protesters of Vietnam and they weren't protesting at the right time, which I so disagree with. Like that war was so pointless and so long when you really boiled it down, and they knew they weren't going to win at a certain point. When you looked at the Pentagon Papers, and so for them to have that viewpoint, that episode really is upsetting to me. But at the same time. I applaud the writing of it and I like that it really makes you think about it and because they put the Nazis in it it really makes you have to think about it right because the Nazis are the, your catch all villain when, it, when fiction anyway like, we'll always say we're then it, it's so funny because uh, <laughs> it's I, a good point yeah, I, was, I was born 12 years after World War II ended which is really a weird <laughs> it's, it's weird to think about it but you know the, the whole World War II when I was a kid was still vivid in every, I mean all of our parents had gone through all kinds of stuff, air raids, you know, drills, and, and blackout drills. Uh, Gene Roddenberry, creator of Star Trek, fought in World War II as well. Right. So. Yeah, Roddenberry was a pilot. Mm-hmm. The Nazis were were pretty evil in everybody's mind. And now, it, it's so ironic that, you know, in, in the 60s, if you called somebody a fascist, it was fighting words. I mean, somebody was going to punch you in the head. And now, it's like, nobody even knows what a fascist is. People don't really, there's not the, not the, the horror associated with Nazism now that, that there was 50 years years ago. In a way, it's that kind of dates this episode a little bit because it was so much more relevant to the people at the time. Mm-hmm. The, the specifics of the... I mean, I, th- I think the story is still tight and great. I lo- I, this is one of my favorite all-time episodes. And my wife and I were watching this. We we're going, oh God, here it comes. Here it comes. Oh no! You know, because we were you know, we remembered it so vividly um, from the first time we saw it. And I remembered it a little differently, but that's, you know, uh, I haven't watched this one for a long time. But I think it was very tightly written 
It was very well acted. I didn't like the war part either, but they kind of had to slide it in. But Edith Keeler yeah. also talked about, you know, when are we going to stop spending money on war and killing people? That's the thing. I agree. And start spending money on life. Yeah. And I and, agree with everything else in this episode. Yeah. But that one thing really that, rubbed me the wrong way. And I realized, like, you're going to take a certain viewpoint. But when you start to really pull that apart, okay, so Uhura doesn't get contact with the Enterprise. But they're assuming that the entire Federation is gone. They don't actually know that the Federation is gone. They just know they can't reach the ship. There are like a million possibilities. They could be in a utopia because they stood up and then it could have been that everybody overthrew the Nazis through passive means and they could have been in an even more of a utopia. Like, we just don't know. And I realize that this is all what ifs, but that's the thing is like, if we're nitpicking a great episode, it's well, a great yeah, episode, but, 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 but that, but the that common, is something I struggle with. The common theme in most stories is hubris. You know, that's man's arrogance. And, and you know, that's one thing that in both these episodes, there's a lot of arrogance in there. Like, I know what's best. Mm-hmm. And then when you confront that, I'm not sure what's best. Like, you know, Kirk is just torn because even though, you know, they have what, 42 minutes, I think, for an episode is what the actual screen time is, something like that. Oh, man, I think it is now. At that time, it's like 50 minutes because we have more commercial breaks from the midpoint of the 90s on. Okay, is it? Okay, I don't remember. Well, but, but I... But you still, it's yeah. not a lot of time to develop the beginning of it, go to where you got to go, meet the woman, fall in love with her, you know, uh, not not just the, you know, the one night, you know, hi, I think I love you. Um, oh my God, I, you know, you were the, the woman for me. But somehow they, they kind of pulled it off, even though it was kind of only really briefly shown in the show. I think that Shatter did a great job in this episode. He, he didn't, he tends to be a little hysterical sometimes when he overacts and he didn't in this one. I mean, this one, I felt pain when I looked at his face. Yeah, and we talked and, last episode about how William Shatner tends to overact. And then we he's pick, a Shakespearean actor by training. I mean, right. that's part but of it. But then we picked the two episodes that, like, he's fantastic in. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> really good in these episodes. Because when, that way, when everybody's good, the episode's better. You know, yeah. it's great. And well, unless it's really crappy writing, yeah. then the great cast can't save. But anyway, so I, I, I really, I, I think this episode holds up really well. It's a little preachy for today because we're a little more sophisticated now than <laughs> We used to be, but I still think it was really good. I mean, we were we watched it and we were both very moved by it again, and went, "Oh God, I hate this part." And and Joan Collins is Edith Keeler, you know. Yeah. She she was her career was just starting to, you know, she was kind of a mid level English actress, and I'm not exactly sure how she ended up in that episode, but she was wonderful in that. I actually know how she wound up in that okay. episode. Star Trek had only been on for a couple of weeks, and she got the script and wasn't wasn't sure if she was going to do it or not, and then it turned out her daughter was a big fan of, of the show already so she did it that's how like it was her her little daughter who liked watching it on tv oh, oh okay so it had only come out okay i see what yeah you so mean. at okay. this point when she it was episode the 26 or 27 yeah or into the like season that. so at this yeah. point it's probably like a month or okay, two into airing the show the magic time of television <laughs> yeah so the next episode we watched was The Devil in the Dark. The show begins with a miner on Janus 6 who is watching for a pizza blanket monster that's killing his crew. He quickly gets dissolved by it off camera. This leads to the Enterprise being called in to investigate. Kirk and Spock talk to the chief who tells him they ran into a pocket of pergium, which is an element that supplies life support systems. Soon after, his men began dying. Spock looks over an orb and asks him what it is. The miner tells him it's just an ignored plot point and they should start hunting the monster. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a red herring. <laughs> 
The monster takes apart from the air system, and since there's no Lowe's nearby, they're running out of air. Scotty attempts to repair it, but admits they only have 48 hours of air left. Spock theorizes that the monster is a silicone-based life form. They modify their phasers and wound it. Spock looks at the fragment left from it and says that it uses acids to burrow quickly through walls. He believes that the amount of tunnels would indicate that it's the last of its kind. To kill it would be a crime against science. Kirk doesn't care and tells his crew to kill it if they see it. Kirk tells the red shirts to look out for the monster and to watch the miners. The red shirts watch the miners, but unfortunately they watch them pick up clubs and clock them over the heads. Meanwhile, Kirk and Spock separate in the tunnels. Kirk encounters a monster, but backs it up when he raises a phaser. He tells Spock he's found it, and Spock tells him not to take a chance and kill the creature. Kirk stays his hand. Spock arrives and mind melds with the creature. He learns that it calls itself a Horda. It burns the words no kill eye into the cavern floor. The Horda is the last of its kind, but has millions of eggs that will soon hatch. The miners broke many of the eggs, and so it tried to drive them out. Kirk has McCoy beam down and heal the Horda by applying loads of spackle to it. Kirk explains to the miners that they destroyed the Horda's eggs and it was protecting its young, but they could live side by side with the Horda digging tunnels for them to collect their minerals. Everybody is happy and laughs at a racy Vulcan joke about dirty humans in a freeze frame. So what do you guys think about this episode? It had really great line by Bones. Yeah. Damn it, Jim, I'm a doctor, not a bricklayer. <laughs> Which is the first, damn it, Jim, I'm a line. Yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah, It's that's the yeah. very first time. And it's a callback from a really old movie in the 30s. I can't remember what it's called. But Gone that with was, the Wind. No, no, it wasn't Gone with the Wind. <laughs> but it's a, it's a consistent joke like four or five times in this movie. This guy says, I'm a doctor, not a blah, blah, blah. And so Gene Kuhn was a fan of the movie, so he slipped that in, and then it became a running joke on the show. So, you know, one thing... Thing I, I just thought of that I, I I didn't didn't have time to look up obviously but I don't think saying damn it on TV was very common in those days I didn't read anything about the damn it but now that you mention it that seems like that would be the case right I I, I but I hell when they said hell in the episode we covered before that was a big deal at the network they tried to get them to not it, say it depends hell. on context yes and they said it four times in the series and that one was a swear and so they weren't supposed to say it but they got away with yeah, it obviously yeah. i'm just curious about that but anyway it, it takes the whole uh paradigm about you know the alien invader or the alien being evil and turns it on its head you know we were the evil ones which was kind of like uh when you and i did the podcast a while back about a few years ago about uh the day the earth stood still here we are the arrogant hubris filled earthlings and uh, you know we think that we know everything and we're top of the heap and then we find out not even close and other people are looking at us more like well we'll give you a chance to grow up, but you better start working on that or we're going to wipe you out. The situation where you look at the Horda, which I think was kind of the inspiration for Pizza the Hut in Spaceballs. Yeah, I could see that. <laughs> now that you mentioned it, I could see that, yeah. I, mean, I bet you Mel Brooks said, oh yeah. You know, it was an intelligent creature. It was only defending itself, you know, I mean, because it, it did have the, po- it, it could have killed everybody. It was there. defending its young, yeah. right? Yeah, or defending its young, yeah. yeah. I mean, it could have destroyed the reactor totally. It could have done other things than it did. You felt bad for this creature. I think Arthur C. Clarke had a, a quote on this from 1995 that actually sums up what you're trying to say.
say. He said it impressed him because it presented the idea, unusual in science fiction then and now, that something weird and even dangerous need not be malevolent. That is a lesson that many of politicians today have yet to learn. It's not malicious. It's just trying to protect its young, but it could totally wipe them all out if it wanted to, right? It's just trying to keep them away from that chamber with the eggs, which is also why it like collapses that tunnel that Kirk's going through. Yeah, it could have easily killed everybody. The guy that played uh, the leader of the planet, and I just forgot his name now, Van- Vandenberg, Vandenberg, something like that. I did not write it down. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, that actor, though, you're talking about people in their careers. There's a guy, that's a guy that he'd been a, a, a bit part guy forever on television. And I remember seeing him forever. Usually, he usually played like a, a police sergeant. <laughs> You know, he'd be on screen for like five minutes and then he'd you know be done or he'd be show up a few times and um, but he was always kind of an a kind of a jerk authority figure mm-hmm. so he, and he's kind, kind of, of a jerk author- it is yeah a, <laughs> he's yeah. a jerk authority he's figure a blow hard one. yeah <laughs> so this episode was written by Gene L. Coon. this was held up by Gene Roddenberry as the episode that encompassed what Star Trek represented in the best way he said the horda suddenly became understandable it wasn't a monster it was someone and the audience could put themselves in the place of the horda identify feel. That's what drama is all about. And it's important too. If you can learn to feel for a horda, you may learn to understand and feel for the other humans of different colors, ways, and beliefs. And I do think to me, this is the best episode of Star Trek. Even when I was a kid, I was just caught up in the monster hunt. It's really almost like Frankenstein at the beginning. It's everybody storming the castle and they're hunting the monster. And then it does this turn where suddenly you're empathetic for it. It's amazing. We talked about the Vietnam thing earlier and there was a message seeded into this which was we're making the Vietnamese out to be these monsters but someday we're going to live side by side with them and we can actually benefit from each other but we have to get past this we have to stop demonizing them and I think that's a pretty amazing message to put on in the 60s I mean you can hide it with science fiction a little bit and put that message out but they're in the middle of a war and they're saying you need to empathize with the people you're fighting like that's pretty incredible and it's uh, ironic that uh, a few years ago when Robert McNamara uh, did that movie, The Fog of War. Have you seen The Fog of War? Yes. It, it's That's exactly one of the main points he makes is that you've got to understand your enemy and not just know what they do, but understand how they, you know, how they feel and why they're doing what they're doing. Because we completely did not know, we did not understand what was going on in Vietnam at all. It was a civil war. Yeah. We were interfering in a civil war. It, it was not, yeah, the Chinese were, you know, involved. But the Chinese weren't telling them what to do. The Chinese were just funneling weapons and, and money to that. Just selling, selling weapons. Yeah. Or, well, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> I, I'm sure at a discount. And us, instead of doing the same thing with the South, you know, we had to send our guys in there because, you know, we're the big, stru- tough, you know, United States. And uh, the last thing I saw a few years ago, um, for the 250 some odd years that this country's been around, we've been in some kind of war for almost 220 of those 250 years. And that says, that just did blew me away when I read that. And and I and I looked at the corroborating evidence. And I said, holy cripes, which this is, is amazing. Which is what makes sense that Star Trek has so many episodes that are about war. I mean, it's not just and trying Vietnam to avoid war that's war. going on. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, the saber rattling and, and like the Horda, the whole thing. It's like, we're going to hunt this thing down and kill it. And, and Kirk's like, yeah, I understand your point, Spock. But, you know, I, I know it might be the last of his kind, but we've got, you know, this is what it's doing. We have to get rid of it. And Spock being the good officer that he is and good soldier. 
larger that he is say, you know, yeah, you're right. You know, we can't afford to have more people die. That is and, something else that I, I like about this episode though, because you say we can't have more people die. I don't, I think Spock is actually pushing back against Kirk until Kirk has it alone. And then he shows a little bit of emotion and he's like, Jim, kill it because yeah. he doesn't want, he, wasn't, he doesn't, he doesn't want, want his friend to die. This is yeah. the first yeah. episode where you really see that connection that Spock has with Kirk. And that's another time when like Star Trek, like the characters are so well defined and this is just like some great play between the characters. I mean, Spock puts up this whole front, like he's always logical and has no emotions, but like he does and he has friendships and he cares about people and, and he's half human. Yeah. And they have a really smart way of letting it slip in there. But what you were talking about earlier, when you were talking about hunting down the creature and how Star Trek in a lot of episodes is trying to avoid war. Uh, this is a great time to jump into for your reconsideration. This is where we talk about episodes of Star Trek you should maybe check out and just do short pitches for them. So uh, the first one I'll bring up is called Arena. It's also a Gene Kuhn episode. And on the surface, sounds like it's kind of the same subject matter. It's the Federation. They see uh, one of their bases is destroyed. They send the Enterprise there. This Gorn ship is like firing at them. They go and chase the Gorn across the galaxy, basically. And then this other race of aliens sees them, pulls Kirk out, pulls the Gorn captain out, and then you have one of the cheesiest moments of Star Trek, which I absolutely the, love. One of the best scenes in Star yeah. Trek. Kirk fighting a guy in a rubber lizard costume for about 25 minutes. It's fantastic. Like, check out that episode. One of the, one of my favorites, and I can't remember the name of it, is where the um, the two guys, and I think Frank Gorshin is one of them, who played the... Uh, played Let the, that be your last battlefield. Right. And and they're... they're, bl- <laughs> they're, they're who watched seven hours of Star yeah, Trek yesterday? Yeah, this guy. Yeah. He was white on one side and black on the other, so he was split right down the middle, black and white. And the other guy that was his enemy, the white and the black were flipped around. It was such a uh, blatant slam on it's, racism. Yeah, you know? it's very can't you tell? He's horrible. He's horrible because he's white on the left and I'm white on the right. You know, it's really funny. I think they did one episode of Futurama based on that episode because they have these people that are black and white stripes, like a referee shirt, their skin tone. They wear jerseys where one half's red and one half's blue. <laughs> And the, the rival gang, the other side's blue and red. Uh, another episode I'd recommend is The Trouble of Tribbles. Yeah. Oh, my I God. Actually, Harry Mudd. Uh, so that's, or that's, Mudd's Women. That's another good one. Yeah. There's two Harry Mudd scripts. He's the only villain to repeat in, in the original series. I mean, when you count the movies, it's a little different. But Harry Mudd, he's selling these and, little furry Tribbles. And this was a spec script that a fan wrote. They brought him into the show. Wound up working with the show all the way through Star Trek The next generation every single supporting character in that show has a moment when you watch the two episodes we watched it was kirk and spock and McCoy and just little dab of Scotty in one episode. And the other one is like a little dab of Uhura and, and a tiny, tiny drop of Scotty and like a tiny drop of Sulu, yeah. right? And that's like it. That's all you get. Trouble Tribbles, everybody's Everybody. on the board. Everybody has a moment. You have Pavel Chekhov talking shit to the Klingons and talking about how the Russians were better than the Klingons in every way. And then you have like Scotty starting a fight, ignoring everything they say until they insult the Enterprise. And then he socks somebody in the face it's just like everybody has a moment in that episode it's scotty also beams the tribbles which multiply like crazy onto the other <laughs> ship 
the Klingon <laughs> ship, yeah. The Klingon yeah. Because yeah. Klingons are allergic to them. Well, the triples or, no, hate triples them. Hate it was, them. That's what it because is. the Klingons look like, that's what it was. look like everybody else. When the Tribble like, lets them know, because they hadn't designed the crazy, veiny looking Klingons that you see yeah, in the motion picture. They just had picture. dark face paint and a little bit of stuff around goatees. their eyes. And, yeah, go- <laughs> goatees. And, the, and a kind of a modified pompadour. <laughs> uh, speaking of goatees, mirror, mirror. Great episode. I just want to plug that really quick. They go into a mirror universe and you have Spock has a goatee and he's the evil Spock. You have Kirk screams at everybody. It's great. Yeah. Uh, how many freaking things has that episode inspired over the years? So oh, the goatee thing? Yes. Yeah, so much. So much to the fact that where when you watch most movies nowadays, a lot of the time the villain will have facial hair. The hero almost never has facial hair. The villain always has some kind of facial hair. And it's got to be it. like put in a point. Like if it's a goatee. Goatee, it's a dead giveaway. It's a bad guy. Yeah, I mean, you think about, like, the Hunger Games. All of the people in the R of Power had this strange, angular facial hair. Breaking Bad, when you're sympathizing with Walter White at the beginning, he's, like, clean-shaven and hair, and he starts to lose his hair. And then at a certain point, he's shaving the hair and grows out the goatee. This is when he's basically lost his soul, right? Like, you see it over and over again. And I really think it stems back to Mirror Mirror. The the. My favorite is uh, on the show Community, where it starts with one episode where they roll a dice and it creates these, like, fragmented dimensions. Anyways, one of them is the evil timeline, and so, like, they all grow goatees. Uh, another episode, this is, like, a really, really good one. This almost made the list. Balance of Terror. You have Mark Leonard, who plays Sarek. First appearance of the Romulans is in this episode, and it's basically a submarine drama where you see what's going on on both sides and see them both as people. It's just, like, a, a really good kind of melodrama. Well, of course, there's Space Seed. Con! We can leave it at that. If you want to know the, the backstory yeah. of Star Trek really, too. Really an excellent episode. Yeah. Yeah. But... The last one I want to say is Spock's brain. Here's the thing. Oh. It's com- yeah, see? it's commonly known as the worst episode of Star Trek. It's fucking hilarious. It is bad. It's bad. But yeah. it's great for all We're, the wrong reasons. It's and, great because think, Spock I, loses I that, his brain. It's great because McCoy is... He's basically walking him around with a remote control that consists of two buttons. Two buttons. <laughs> two buttons. You can make him run up and punch somebody. Instead of running up and punching it's, somebody, he has Spock run up yeah, and but, punch somebody. You know, with these two see, buttons he's actually it's actually thought control it's just that the thoughts is is uh funneled through the finger into the button and then whatever excuse you gotta <laughs> give it dude i'm the one making the case for spock's brain this is crazy but yeah, but, yeah but but also i i think that uh, spock's brain inspired some of the characters in star wars you know the the guys on the spaceship that had the computer thing around their heads or oh yeah on yeah top. clearly the same thing well let's take a quick commercial break and then we'll get into the closing of the show Hot water wash. Okay. Cold water wash. Pretty clean. Oh, they didn't look that good. When can I stop kidding myself? Out of the future comes all temperature cheer with the all temperature clean. Must they're powerful ingredients. Certainly they're powerful. To give you the best looking wash your world has seen in hot water, warm, cool, cold, and everything in between. Terrific. Now, now that's white. Cheer gives you a great looking white in hot water. And in cold water, that's clean. Cheer beats even the leading cold water detergent. Wait till you see my kids tomorrow. I'll be watching. Superior ability. 
breeds superior ambition. Boy, is this stuff clean and at all those temperatures. All temperature. Hello out there. I'm Mr. Sulu of Star Trek. When I'm out in space, I use the Starship Enterprise to get around. When I'm here in Milwaukee, I ride the bus to save time and money. Your $5 weekly pass is a great buy. Your bus tickets, the greatest. Take it from a man who knows. Your Milwaukee County transit system is really out of this world. Come ride with us on the bus. Bringing back to your point at the beginning of the show, Dad. Star Trek did not have the first interracial kiss on oh. American television. The episode Pluto's Stepchildren is the one it's from. Adventure in Paradise had a kiss between a Filipino woman and a white man. Lucille Ball and Dizzy Arnaz kissed on I Love Lucy. Robert Culp and a Eurasian woman kissed on I Spy a couple years before that. Move- I Spy wasn't bef- was it before that? Are it you was sure? concurrent. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And there was a third season of Star Trek, Pluto's Stepchildren. So it happened. Been during the run of Star Trek, but 68. before. Okay. And then Moving with Nancy had a kiss between Nancy Sinatra and Sammy Davis Jr. Tell me that's not before. It is. There was a lot of examples. Right. Here's the thing. And Carol O'Connor and, 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 and uh, Sammy Davis Jr. kissed Carol O'Connor on All in the Family. But that was in the 70s. Yeah, yeah. We'll cover that later in this series. So it was not the first time. However, it's what people remember. And there was a cost to Star Trek for that. There was a cost because they lost a lot of outlets in the South. There was a lot of people that just dropped it and refused it show star trek they just show the news or they show a rerun of something like they refused to show star trek after that did not help with the ratings of that show in the season that they got canceled that's one of those things where it's like everybody remembers the legend but the history is a little bit different so i just wanted to point that out like there was a couple of cases but it was fucking rare because i listed every case that happened before that and that was what three things you know just taking the piss out of the legend a little bit how many of them you know i i think that more people saw this one than the others because i know i spy was nowhere near as big a show as uh star trek was. you're probably right and I, so, i'm not tr- yeah. i'm not trying to I take mean, out the <clears throat> the momentum the momentum yeah. of it like it, it's important but <clears throat> excuse me yeah i mean i grew up assuming that was true and i never did bother to check it so yeah it's one of those things with the internet now it's really easy to find out this stuff i there was so many things i looked up about star trek and realized like oh that's not true um another thing that's kind of been botched with history over time so Star Trek was renewed for its second season because of an intense letter writing campaign, right? It was nearly canceled after the second season because of low ratings, but brought back for the third season because of a letter writing campaign again, okay? So here's what you never hear about. After the third season, it was canceled, right? Nelson got a hold of NBC after they canceled the show and after everything was done, they were done with the run. And then they said, so we kind of messed up. Uh, The 18 to 49 demographic that they the key demographic they're looking for for advertisers star trek was number one so they offered gene roddenberry the moon and the stars and he was just like no i can't do it like he was so stressed out and needed a break but star trek could have come back gene roddenberry and james Dewan's ashes were blasted into space on nasa rockets that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Inventions inspired by Star Trek, big screen televisions, cell phones, voice activated computers, Google Translate, Bluetooth, tricorders, video calls, tasers, personal computers, and GPS. And that's leaving out shit because I can only read off so many things. And when they were actually shooting an episode, the FBI visited them because the uh, diagnostic board that Bones had, the military had been working on that and they thought they had a leak 
Did the military just like watch a lot of science fiction and get upset at people all the time? They watched freaking everything. The Vulcan greeting is actually a gesture from a Jewish blessing. Leonard Nimoy said when he was a kid, he was watching some Jewish ceremony and they were supposed to have their eyes closed and he peeked his eyes open and he saw the uh, rabbi was doing that symbol to all the people in the crowd. So also Barack Obama greeted Leonard Nimoy with the the Vulcan (laughs) gesture. So (laughs) that's awesome. That's cool. Yeah. Lucille Ball, head of Desilu Productions, like Star Trek and use her influence to get the second pilot made after the cage was rejected. And then Nimoy was supposed to knock out Kirk in a scene, but thought brute force wouldn't suit his character. He improvised the Vulcan neck pinch, which Shatner loved and went along with. And he was so good at fainting, Nimoy said, that it took <laughs> and became a mainstay on the show. Does it hold up? You know, the themes of it really, really hold up. Some of the set design and stuff looks, especially in like high definition, it's you can really see the seams. Some of the stuff's a little bit hokey and a little bit uh, cliche because, you know, they were creating a lot of those cliches then in the yeah. 50s and 60s. And so now but, it's cliche. Then it wasn't cliche. So when you put things in context, excellent stories. You have really good acting. And I, I agree. And uh, I think the writing on the show is its best quality by far. The acting, I so I think Leonard Nimoy always brings it. He's always fantastic on the show. The supporting actors are always great. Shatner is a ham. Not so much in these two episodes we watch, but he is a ham actor but you know what it really works for the show i gotta say yeah, they, they needed somebody they needed a really strong main character yeah so the, the one other thing i want to mention with the look of the show obviously like the sets i mean there's a lot of stuff that can come off as hokey but i actually think the colors really really stand up like at the time they were making it a big thing at nbc that all their shows were in color everything was in living color and so they were trying to make the colors pop you know they didn't look great on the, the sets at home but what that means is like they have this super crazy look nowadays. I just love it, man. I I love yeah. the way the colors pop. You have so many soft show. colors and then dark colors and then this bright red or this bright yellow or green, you know, like a ceiling or a wall or, you know, or, or maybe clothing in the uh, uh, Devil in the Dark. The one guy that, that was carrying the club all the time, he had that kind of magenta colored jumpsuit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, everybody had gold except for a couple miners had magenta. Which yeah. was like crazy. <laughs> Like, like, I'm a miner and I wear magenta. Uh, like, yeah. that's very yeah. progressive of Star Trek. <laughs> you know, what I thought was really great about that episode was they had 12 red shirts in a row. <laughs> yeah. You're like, yeah, you knew they were like, in trouble. Yeah, which and one, then you see the clubs like, what, and you're like, they're fucked. Yeah, what's they're, the over under? How many of these guys are going to die? Yeah, and only one of them. Yeah. It was so disappointing. Two episodes and only one red shirt death. That's pretty uh, impressive. Yeah, it was, <laughs> other people died, though. The sexism, the good things you can talk about. We talked about the cage with Majel Barrett. Many skirts were considered feminist at the time, but I was reading on this quite a bit, and they said that it was a woman's way to express her sexuality. It was a big deal, which I never would have thought and of. When you look at it, Ohura's skirts are different lengths. But she actually had red panties under her red shirt. Mm-hmm. And I had I don't think I'd ever noticed that before. So maybe it was a high def thing, but but she had this oh, short is. short. Okay, yeah. She had this short short skirt. I'd jeez, you know. Yeah, the way I watched Uhura when I was a kid versus the way I watched Uhura after puberty were completely different. <laughs> I gotta tell you. Uh anyway. <laughs> So that was Mr. Rogers too. Yeah. <laughs> 
This is the wrong time to make that joke. However, lots of women, just historically over the show, swooning over the officers all the time. Women being painted as irrational in the show all the time. Vaseline on the lens, like when you see Joan Collins, but that was something they constantly did. If they had a guest star female, they always put Vaseline over the lens to make them look dreamy. Soften it. Yeah, it never happened with any guy. Absence of women on Janice 6. That's the only episode of Star Trek without any women. But it should be mentioned, like in the future, there can't be women minors. Couldn't be a, a woman from the crew that well, shows up in some way. You know, it, no show is perfect. I mean, I think... No, they, I don't think yeah, it's perfect. Yeah. It's just clearly pointing these things cl- out, yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, nowadays, you, you the Guardians of the Galaxy on the mine there, there were women prisoners, men prisoners, you know, the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Was, uh, behind the cameras, uh, Nimoy found out that Nichelle Nichols wasn't being paid as much as Decay or uh, Kenning, which all the supporting cast were getting paid the same. So he pressed the higher-ups until they matched their pay with theirs. So good on uh, Leonard Nimoy. There's a reason that they used to say that women only made 67 cents on the dollar compared to men for yeah. the same job. I don't know how much different that is today either. Not much. Yeah. There, there are other factors, but you know that's not relevant to the topic at hand. Do you like Star Trek? I love Star Trek. I love these episodes. I had a lot of emotions that came up from when I first saw them. I, I remember being just blown away by Star Trek on a regular basis. I... I really enjoy Star Trek. It's one of those few shows that my father and I watched together because he really enjoyed those. And I remember watching them as a young, young child. And I mean, I'm pretty sure I watched Star Trek before I watched Star Wars. Mm -hmm. But I hadn't seen those till I was pushing double digits. But I remember watching Star Trek as a young kid. Pushing double digits? Like 10? Like 10. Okay. I I mean, that's... Some of the few things I can think about, like watching Star Trek with my dad. and um, I mean, he still watches them. I mean, he, I go over to his house and he's watching Next Generation. Or I mean, he's still a big Star Trek fan. I enjoyed going back and I, I remember watching almost all of the original Star Trek movies with him. So... You know, I used to watch it with my dad too. My, my mom wasn't really big on science fiction. My dad loved it. We used to, he used to take us to drive in movies that were like the day of the Triffids and the day, you know, the invasion of the body snatchers and stuff like that. And my dad loved that stuff. And, and, uh, that was one of the things we actually agreed on a lot. I don't think he saw the episode where Kirk and Uhura kiss. Cause I think that would have put him off the deep end. Yeah. Deep end. Grandpa's a little bit of a racist. Yeah. He was a little <laughs> that way, but. He's gone. Yeah. He, he mellowed a bit, but he was still, you know, he still had that there. But, but even Grandpa watched Star Trek because I, I watched Star Trek with you. I watched it with Grandpa. I watched it with my grandma and grandma, Grandpa on the other side of my family. Like, I watched it with Mom. I watched it with my brother. Like, I just watched the shit out of Star Trek. And, like, I feel like everybody in my family was on board at that. But I remember specifically, and I don't know why this is such a, a memory that sticks out, but we were at Grandpa's apartment, and I remember we watched a piece of the action i did not know the title at the time but i saw it years and years later and saw the title and was like oh because it's the one where there's this book left behind on this planet it's a gangster book and then they leave and they come back like 10 years later and the whole planet has just copied that book and just made it like their doctrine and so it's like they're walking around in like 1930s chicago with gangsters and tommy guns and everything and it's just this alien species that's like copying it but i remember 
remember grandpa being into that. I'm pretty sure he mentioned he had them all on tape. So he oh, had yeah. to have watched oh, yeah. it at some point. Oh, yeah. He liked Star Trek a lot. Yeah. And, you know, you know, I think that episode is what part of the inspiration for Galaxy Quest, too. Oh, dude. Yeah. yeah. Galaxy Quest is so cribbed off as of Star Trek. <laughs> and it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be very obvious, you know. But uh, I think this is probably a good place to uh, quit. So we'll see you next episode. Stay tuned. Thank you. Next on In Syndication, Taxi, the sitcom that ran from 1978 to 1983 and had an ensemble cast that's still felt in television today. Thanks for listening to the Not Safer Network. Check out our other shows, Pop Culture Consumption, We Had a Good Life, and Movies with Wrestlers.